this constant conversation that's coming from both the left and the right, frankly, which has to do with if you just stay inside and stay away from people, the pandemic will go away. Well, many of our communities don't have those options. And so you're actually gaslighting people into thinking that there are ways in which they could just possibly stay home and keep their communities safe. That's a place of privilege. My original form of activism has always been food activism. We started doing this donation cook the first week in April in response to the pandemic, but the people throughout Sullivan County have been in crisis before the pandemic, and the pandemic only made things worse, but we kept cooking. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, election 2020 is done. Next... We did it! 154 million Americans voted and democracy won. At the top of the ticket, President-elect Joseph R. Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. How did it happen? With us on the Janice Adams Show today are two everyday people like you and me who put their boots on the ground to turn ideal into reality. Christina Chrissy Smith is the owner of the Calicoon Theater, a landmark vintage movie house engaging community in exciting contemporary ways. Dana Halperin is a chef, community organizer, and president of the Sullivan County Young Democrats. Here's Dana. The night before the election, I was phone banking for Jen Metzger and Antonio Delgado. And then at around nine o'clock at night, I went around to um, all of the polling places in the town of Fallsburg um, and put Metzger signs around and canvas the polling places. <laughs> And Chrissy, what were you doing? I chose Pennsylvania as my baby, my focus. In New York State, we're in the Western Catskills, but we are nestled right up against the river and the border of Pennsylvania. So I became involved in phone banking and volunteering through a website called votesaveamerica.com, which was put together by the guys at Crooked Media. They had a program where you adopted uh, one of the many identified swing states, and then you would phone bank for that state. You would call, you would try to get regist newly registered voters if you could. And I thought, well, I'm right here, right across the, the river from Pennsylvania. I'll pick Pennsylvania and make that my challenge. So I was working on, on that leading up to the election. In these times of pandemic, I can barely even remember the night of the election or, you know, that feels like three years ago. And I know it was only a couple of weeks, but time is a flat circle these days. I love that. A flat circle. Yeah. <laughs> is it a pancake? Pear-shaped <laughs> circle. <laughs> in fact, in Pennsylvania, which was a swing state that swung, what was the conversation that you were hearing? I mean, one of the things that I love about having both of you on is that you have lives that are blended. You have your own professional life, and then you have your, your life as an activist. And so it means that clearly you also have a different ear to the ground. And I'm interested in that and how that kind of informed your feeling about what was happening in this election, where it was headed. Chrissy? I'm not a political analyst or any sort of professional in, in any way. All I do is I, I follow and I try to inform myself as best I can as, as a private citizen and, and business owner in a small town in rural America. But speaking just to that tiny little corner of the world that I inhabit. That's exactly the corner of the world we want you to, to speak to, because that's where other people are who are listening. And I think one of the things I've learned, you know, this year, not just regarding the election, but the summer of protests, the pandemic, all of these things sort of coming together as sort of a perfect storm of uh, things that we've had to juggle and deal with in many different ways. I've 
really come into a, a, an understanding that all of these things are interconnected. And the world is a much more intersectional place than I think we've considered until at least that I've, until I've considered until recently. Um, you know, when you, when you start a small business, everybody will tell you not to be political. Everyone will tell you, don't ever, don't ever get political with your business. You're going to lose customers. Don't ever get spiritual, religious. Don't show them who you are. Don't be that person. You should keep it all completely out of your business. And, and for me, I, I had a real shift in that thinking where I realized, well, if I'm going to have my own business and I'm going to employ myself, I'm going to work harder than anybody for this. And why shouldn't it sit in accordance with my values? And, and, and if I'm going to put this time and money and energy into something, why shouldn't it feel rooted in what I want the world to be? And, and the sensibilities that I hold true to myself. So, so you know, that, that was kind of a big, I'd never been a small business owner until only two years ago. So that was like a big thing to sort of shift over and go, well, this is how I'm going to do it. And I sleep at night if I do it this way. So that's also part of it. Yeah, but you as a small business owner are um, in film distribution. You are in the marketplace of ideas, thinking, you know, thought leadership. And it always strikes me when people say, don't get involved, don't get involved, because that is an involvement. It is an action. That's that's very true. It's saying to me is help us maintain the status quo by not talking about it. Thank you. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And Dana, what about you? You come to this as a chef. How did you come to your activism? Well, I'm from Sullivan County. So I grew up here. I went away to college and I came back because I studied sustainable agriculture in Vermont. And when I was living in Vermont, I was working on a food access program there for marginalized communities. And I'm like, you know, nobody needs this. Like my community of Sullivan County needs this, you know, and and so... I came back to work on that food access program November 4th. um, I went into the kitchen and I cooked for our donation cook um, that we have been doing every week since the beginning of April. Um, And then in the evening, I had a call with the My Brother's Keeper Fallsburg Community Alliance. So, you know, I have all of these projects that I've been saying these have to wait until after the election. And now, even though they're still counting the absentee votes in Sullivan County, I have, you know, all of these projects now that I'm, right back boots on the ground or in new york as we like to say tim's on the ground uh working on them so um i i feel really grateful that i found a group of um community that is willing to work on these projects and you know um we don't have the brain drain in sullivan county of people who are college educated moving out of the county and never coming back there are intelligent people here, whether they have a college education or not, who are now taking interest in working on these community-based projects. And it's really refreshing and inspiring and I'm ready to go. For those who don't know, Tim's on the ground. What does that mean? Timberlands. It's, you know, New York, we wear Timberlands. So I like to be a little bit more specific than just generic boots on the ground. Well, in New yeah, York, we're I mean, wearing Timberlands. In another generation, it would have been Burks on the ground. <laughs> For Birkenstocks. <laughs> in, Vermont, in Vermont, it was Birkenstocks on the ground. <laughs> I want to bring this uh, conversation in, in an interesting way. You said that election day, that evening, you cooked. Uh, the following day. The following Ele- day, the morning, you cooked. Yeah, I was, I was poll closing on election day. What? did you cook? Oh, what did, well, I was recovering from a really bad, poorly timed back injury that day too. So thankfully I have um, a great team. My boss, Amy Miller, my partner, Daniel Escola and uh, Bree Bidwell work on the donation cook with me. And they really picked up the slack that day. There's a couple, like Chrissy said, time is a flat circle. Now I think we made a, um, we made a pasta with peanut sauce. We made a slaw with a like miso ginger dressing. Um, 
rice and black beans with tomatillos and probably like a kale salad. I don't know. It's that, that, that donation cook is different from the stuff we normally cook because we have to focus on um, getting the most bang for our buck because it's all community funded. All of the donations mm -hmm. go to the cost of ingredients and packaging. We don't get paid any hours for it. So we got to figure out what, what goes the farthest. So a lot of beans, a lot of grains, and then also what keeps um, and packs and stores well. So um, you know, we can't use like salad greens. It's got to be like kale and cabbage and stuff like that. It's interesting that you were able to use peanuts though. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, uh, thankfully Marty Calavito, um, and the community pantry, they've been distributing all of these meals for us and they're good at, you know, telling people this, ha what it, what it has in it. And what, what it has it in it. I yeah. asked you the question about what you cooked because, of food being a story in and of itself. And it's about the politics, it's about the places, it's about the people who are going to prepare it, the people who are going to ingest it. So what story in your mind comes from that issue of what you prepared that night, why you prepared it that night, and what you were thinking the result of this work was going to be as you were doing it that night, especially that very confusing night after the election. The vibe in the kitchen, it was so quiet because at that point, you know, um, we didn't know who the president elect was going to be. Um, but I went into the kitchen in the morning and, you know, I was in pain because I had a back injury and I was like on my feet for 16 hours the day before. Right. Um, in my Timberlands. <laughs> my original form of activism has always been food activism. Um, and it's, it's nice to be able to come back to that every week. We started doing this donation cook the first week in April in response to the pandemic, but the people throughout Sullivan County have been, who received this food have been in crisis before the pandemic. This is not, you know, a new thing to them. A lot of people in Sullivan County are in financial distress and the pandemic only made things worse. But we kept cooking for this because our work schedule has shifted. We lost like all of our big wedding catering. So normally that Wednesday would have been a cook day for us for work. And, you know, because of the, the pandemic, we now had that as a free day. So rather than sit at home, we go in and cook. And you were asking... Um, the significance of the food that we were cooking. Um, a lot of the people who receive the food are from Latin, the Latinx community um, here in Sullivan County. They work in a lot of the food processing um, plants and industries here in farms. And so I do try to rotate in some of that cuisine to, you know, so people are comfortable with the food that they're eating. We do also donate bulk produce and grains every week. And so we donate rice, um, poblanos, plantains, onions, things that, you know, these communities are familiar um, cooking with. So, mm -hmm. Chrissy, what about you? What were you doing the day after the election? To think back in terms of the timeline, I, we didn't really know, right? Like there was no, still we didn't. the day one, day two, day three, the states were still coming in. Um, we knew that the mail-in vote was going to start coming in. Trump had set it up so that he would declare victory on the night of the election based on the idea that he knew that his base was going to actually go to the polls. And so the anticipation was there of what would happen with these mail-in ballots. That's where yeah. we were. To be perfectly honest, I spent 48 hours nonstop looking at my phone, looking at the news. I mean, at one point I had six different tabs open on my laptop with six different news sources because the AP would call something, but it wouldn't be called elsewhere. And, and then I'd have my phone open to something else. And I was just, I mean, I've never lived through an election like this before where I would just click on the state and get down into, okay, there's 8,000 votes here. At, this is, you know, you, you feel like Rain Man or something, you're sort of, and carry the one. And then if this moves over, then there's one more electoral, you know, that tiny little part of Nebraska that gave us that single blue electoral vote. I was obsessed with uh, because it opened up 
so many other channels, even without Pennsylvania, um, to, to, to a victory for Biden and, and Harris. So I was, yeah, I was glued. Um, we don't have cable here, but, you know, I was using my internet and, and just kind of tracking it all like a crazy person. And, and that's how I processed it. That's what I, that's what I needed to do was sort of a, like diving in and then sort of stepping back and, and, and relaxing for a minute if I could, but it was, it was pretty intense, um, you know, for a while there. I know I was feeling ill because it was just, the stress was too much. It still is. Um, The idea that one person, regardless of his title, one person is able to jack up a whole country. There's something very wrong with that. And car sick because when you're car sick and someone else is driving the car or or seasick, the feeling of nauseousness when you're, when you are out of control. There's, there's no longer anything you can do. That was, that was the feeling because leading up until the election, and I'm sure Dana will agree, staying busy, staying active, just trying to get that one, uh, that one person to register that one vote out there. But then once, you know, the Tuesday, the polls had closed and then it was a lot like being car sick, just be like pull over <laughs> need to get out. <laughs> That is an excellent description. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I've felt it that way. So thank you for giving explanation to what I've been feeling. And I think other people are probably very appreciative too to make sense out of what makes no sense whatsoever. Um, In your process then, you have your business life that has been upended too because of COVID. And I'm interested, what has it told you about business and community and activism? What have you learned? Well, I mean, I, I do think that, that I have really internalized how interconnected all these things are. Your business has been unique. It is a movie theater. One of the things that strikes me is that in this very small community, it is a lifeblood in and of itself. It, it is a, a community center, cultural center hub that we now don't have. It is so painful really to drive by and see it closed. Yeah. What has it meant to you? It's been, it's been very difficult because I've spent my entire life, um, you know, my whole life going back to when I was a student and a young person in New York City, working in the arts. And uh, primarily prior to owning a movie theater, I, I worked in the performing arts. But a movie theater, you know, a theater is a theater. And I've always worked in these spaces wherein bringing people together physically to breathe the same air, to share space, and to watch a play, hear a concert, watch a film, is a form of um, active participation in humanity. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's what I know. It's what I know how to do. And it's been really difficult during this specific time frame because of the pandemic. It's, that's become the most dangerous thing to all of us, is to come together indoors in a space and, and share space with one another. Um, so, so that's been extremely tough. And, and you know, I, I very much understand, you know, people have said when they drive by and they see the marquee and it's dark and they just want to know when it's coming back. It's been, I was counting it up. It's been over eight months that we've been closed. We can technically now reopen and we are tangibly sort of working on that, but you know, it's, it's pretty scary. The numbers are starting to climb again here in New York State. Um, and, and that's really, you know, frankly, that's a lot to put on a small business owner to sort of take away this, this space, you know, my, my viable business for eight months and then sort of give it back right at the time when flu season is hitting. The numbers are coming back up. The holidays are coming up everybody's saying that's going to create a spike. So it puts me as a person in this strange moral conversation of, of whether or not I um, should reopen my business, my livelihood. 
Um, and, and, that, and that feeds into, right, this conversation of politics and, and whether or not we've actually been cared for throughout this pandemic in a way that we ought to have been. I personally feel that we have not. I, I personally feel that this constant conversation that's coming from both the, both the left and the right, frankly, which has to do with if you just stay inside and stay away from people, um, you know, the pandemic will go away. Well, many of our communities don't have those options. And so you're, you're actually sort of, cre you're gaslighting people into thinking that, you know, there are ways in which they could just possibly stay home and keep their communities safe. That's, that's not an, that's a place of privilege to be able to do that. Not all communities have that option. And, um, and, and really the responsibility should have been with our government and our elective, uh, elected officials to step up to the plate during this entire year. And I, I personally feel as a small business owner that didn't happen. That did not happen. What did happen? Please welcome the Vice President-Elect of the United States of America, Kamala Harris. Good evening. <laughs> we are so grateful to Joe and Jill for welcoming our family into theirs on this incredible journey. And to the woman most responsible for my presence here today, my mother, Shamala Gopalan Harris, who is always in our hearts. Uh, when she came here from India at the age of 19, she maybe um, didn't quite imagine this moment. But she believed so deeply in an America where a moment like this is possible. And so I am thinking about her and about the generations of women, black women, Asian, white, Latina, Native American women who throughout our nation's history have paved the way for this moment tonight. Women who fought and sacrificed so much for equality and liberty and justice for all, including the black women who are often too often overlooked but so often prove they are the backbone of our democracy. We're back with our guests today on the Janice Adams Show. Dana Halpern, she is a chef and activist and Christina Smith, Chrissy Smith. She is a movie theater owner, activist. And I have asked them both to join us on the show today because I think their real world boots in the ground perspective on what it means just to be an everyday person in the thick of it. And, um, and so I'm really excited that they're both here. I'm also excited that we have two women here and we have in segment one we kind of held off on talking about this amazing thing that has happened which is the election of Kamala Harris what are you both feeling about that so I actually identify as non-binary but I um you know, was raised and conditioned as a woman for most of my life. So I do share in that joy of having Kamala Harris elected as president, I mean, vice president. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> Next time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so that is, that is a momentous occasion. And it's a shame that it had to take so long for that to actually happen. Um, yes. The first woman vice president, the first vice president of color of Southeast Asian descent from immigrant parents. It's been a long time coming. All of it. All of it. You know, I think that this is a very meaningful achievement, and I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, I think Kamala Harris 
you know, ran a good race through the primaries and she also brought a lot to the Biden campaign that would have otherwise been missing. Um, and I don't think that he would have been successful if it wasn't for her, quite frankly. Um, but we also have to take a look at progressive grassroots activists, particularly communities of color, like Stacey Abrams, who registered 800,000 new voters in Georgia and basically swung the election for Biden. Um, you know, organizers in Philly doing the same thing, organizing in communities of color. This is the same movement that got Obama elected for both of his terms. It was outside of the DNC. It was a grassroots movement that was progressive and was organized primarily of communities of color. Um, so I think it's really time that the DNC, from the top down to the county level, realizes that Picking, you know, moderate centrist Democratic candidates is not a tactic for success. Um, you know, it wasn't progressive Democrats who had losses in their senatorial races. Um, it, you know, so it's, it's time basically to instead of focusing, uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi said this, and I've been so stuck on it ever since I heard it in his TED talk, instead of focusing on the swing voter of somebody who swings from voting Republican to Democrat, we need to focus on the swing voter of somebody who swings from voting Democrat to not voting at all. And those are people from communities of color. They're young people. They're queer people. They're people who have progressive politics that they don't see represented in the ideals of the Democratic Party. But we can get there. Stacey Abrams is a measure of that. AOC is a measure of that. We, the, the population is only getting younger. It's only getting more diverse. We need to progress from the centrist, old, white man candidate. It worked this election for us because we brought somebody else on board. It's time to give that person, that other person, the spotlight. There are many people who, who will say, well, you know, but if we had had the conversation that you are voicing, then Biden would have lost. I mean, he almost lost anyway, people will say, you know, this whole thing about defund the police. And I'm not sure it's accurate or not accurate, but I'm just saying that this is what we're hearing people say, is that that conversation about defund the police was a non-starter that made a lot of people turn around and say, law and order, that's what we need. Really? So I think that, you know, the law and order campaign started in the like Reagan administration and it carried over to Clinton. Clinton was like, I'll be damned if I let a Republican take a stance that's tougher on crime than I am. So they made the crime bill. They fabricated a war on drugs before there was uh, even an issue with crack in inner cities. This is a narrative that has been created and it's been created to basically keep the classes separated and to keep the races separ separated. Our politics are still so segregated and that is to basically prevent, you know, the working class from rising up and participating and making this a true democracy. Um, you know, that this narrative of race of as long as you're a poor white person, you're still better than this poor black person. That's been created and fabricated by our government. So pointing the finger at progressives and being like, oh, you know, you almost cost Biden the election. Well, if it wasn't for progressives campaigning on the grassroots level, we wouldn't have a victory. And I do feel comfortable saying that. I think that even though, you know, Biden wasn't a strong progressive candidate, and we saw that very readily on the primary stage, I'll be the first person to say Biden was not my top pick. Um, he was still attacked on those left wing platforms that he never embraced because that's what the Trump mass and the right wing news always drove home. So he didn't embrace the Green New Deal, but he was still attacked on it. He didn't embrace um, Medicare for all, but was still attacked on it. He was very serious that he was tough on crime. He picked a vice president who had a record for being tough on crime as a DA. And, you know, the right wing and the Trump mass still attacked him on those things. And he wasn't able to defend the policies because they were never his stance to begin with. Imagine what it would have been like to have an actual progressive up there who would have been like, this is how we're going to 
fund Medicare for all. This is my tax bill for it. This is how we're going to fund, you know, free public college. If you make under a certain amount of money in your income, like this is what, this is the plan for the new green deal. This is how we're going to prevent the, you know. Yeah. But those people were part of the conversation during the primaries and they did not win. Now that is something, that's a question. Why didn't they win? Those progressive politics were on the debate stage. Why didn't they win? And it's a good thing they were on the debate stage because they moved the needle in the direction of those conversations. Um, so that was like major progress. But I honestly think the reason they didn't win is because they had the DNC working against them. They had the DNC and, you know, media sources saying that the best way to defeat Trump, which was, you know, goal number one for all of us, that's why I went out and voted for Biden, was that we had to have this more moderate candidate because otherwise we would be alienating middle America. Um, but I think that really discounts, once again, like the grassroots activism that we have seen in Georgia, that we've seen in the Navajo Nation turning out in record numbers to go out and vote, even though they're facing some of the highest COVID infection rates. Like these are communities that realize it was a life or death decision for them. So this maybe wasn't the election to, to mess it up. But in, in 2016, we saw some of the lowest turnouts in a voting in a presidential election because people didn't want to go turn out to vote for a candidate that they didn't feel recognized their ideals on either side of the political spectrum. And then four years later, thankfully, people learned from that mistake and realized that they got to vote, you know, no matter who's up there on the other side, it's got to be better than what we've been dealing with for the past four years. I much agree with Dana. I think that um, you can even track post the primaries how the Biden-Harris ticket became more progressive through that conversation um, that, that happened on, on the national platform stage of the primaries. Um, you know, for me, it was a little terrifying. Biden wasn't my first choice either. It was a little terrified it was a little terrifying when he became the pick because I started to hear a lot of young people say, well, then I just won't vote. And that was really scary. You know, I, I'm not that young. I'm 40, you know, and, and me saying, no, we, we have to, like, this is too important. I get, you know, he was not my number one either, but this is too important to just stay home this time. And, um, and I did feel that, his platform became more progressive post the primaries. I think he really recognized, and, and I, I'm sure Kamala Harris, in conversations with his vice president pick, they realized together that the, that the needle did need to move. I mean, yes, it's a moderate ticket. I think it's the ticket we needed in 2020. It covers a breadth of scope in terms of being a bit more moderate and a bit more centrist in some places, but, but actually quite progressive in others. And I think this is just kind of what we needed in 2020. We needed to play it a little bit safe. We needed to get out of the situation that we've been in for the last four years, which is frankly dangerous to people's lives at this point, um, not just livelihoods, but lives. So, you know, it was, it was time to sort of Compromise. I mean, this is the issue, right, that Democrats have been facing forever. We're a big tent party. That's a lot harder than being a Republican. A Republican, you, you can just come up with three hot button issues and that's your Republican ticket. As the Democratic Party, we're a big tent party. We have to represent a lot of different collectives of people. And that is not always the easiest thing to do. People have different backgrounds. They have different um, experiences of the world and they have different needs and it's harder to create a, a political party that meets all of these I mean this is why a lot of developed nations in the world don't have a two-party system right they have more than one party because it's really hard to get everybody under this one tent and I think that we did accomplish it this with this ticket in in, in some ways we learned the pain of not having a two-party system in 2000 when the swing vote went to Ralph Nader. What did happen in my experience is many of those young people, I mean, we saw with the exit polls, many of those young people did not stay home. They did not choose, oh, well, this was not my, it wasn't Bernie, so I'm just not going to show up. 
you know, young people turned out, um, communities, um, the indigenous communities turned out. I mean, we've all seen these maps, right, that show, what, what is it, 97% the, the vote um, First Nations areas, like, lights up blue on the maps. And there were, um, you know, there were a lot of things I think we learned from those exit polls about who, who showed up. And I'm sure the reasons were varied as to why, but it, mm -hmm. I have to believe that it's also come out of the last four years and just people saying enough is enough. Um, and this may not be a moment of perfection as, as per Joe Biden being my number one choice, but it's, it's moving in the right direction. And, and also a lot of conversations I've had about it have been a little bit bittersweet, right? It's, it's like, great, this happened. The election went Democrat. Now we work. Now the work begins. Let me ask you both. You're talking about who made the difference. And obviously we all did. But do you both identify white? I do. Okay. Yeah. So I'm an African-American woman for people who haven't heard the show before. Everybody is crediting the black women who rallied at the behest of James Clyburn in South Carolina to give Biden a shot. This election, like the last one, an amazing number of white women voted against their own interests. You have to say that. Yeah. What were you hearing around your own extended family tables? My family's Jewish, so we're a little bit smarter than voting against our own interests, but there are people who are, you know, one issue voters. So there's a lot of Jewish people who did support Trump because they like his stance with Israel. Um, and so that's really devastating for me to see because, you know, common sense tells Jewish people that they shouldn't be on the same side as the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis and supporting the same candidate you think? Um, as they are. But, you know, I driving around Sullivan County, you see women for Trump signs. And I'm like, what, you know, what, what about this candidate? Is it that you, you know, appeals to you? Um, I, I really don't get it. I, I guess it's just like the narrative that's been driven home to them. Um, the right wing talking points that have been regurgitated upon them for at least the last four years. Um, and I think fear of the unknown. So, you know, when the protests started happening this summer in response to the murder of George Floyd, we were out protesting in Sullivan County for Black Lives Matter. We were handing out voter registrations at every single protest. My neighbors all went and put up, we back the blue and put in blue light bulbs in their porch lights. So I'm like, you know, there's some sort of moral disconnect, I think. You know, Chrissy, I'm sure you agree with this as a white activist who put Black Lives Matter on your theater marquee yes. and had a lot of repercussion in a conservative town because of that. As white people, we have to be willing to do a lot of the heavy lifting now. And... There was also an uptick in support for Trump among young black men, which I was pretty surprised about. Um, and I, and I, you know, I'm saddened to see that too. And I, I don't understand it. I don't understand what about the last four years would warrant people still supporting and voting against their own interests. That next community as well, that was sort of an alarming jump from four years ago to now, um, which, which is interesting because, you know, a, a lot of people I know have said, you know, the Democrats need to stop only being interested in the Latinx communities of America every four years, right? Why do we only become an interesting community to you, the Democratic Party, when you have a general election coming up? And I think that's really valid. When we come back, more with our guests, Dana Halpern and Christina Smith after the break. with our guests today on the Janice Adams Show, Dana Halpern. She is a chef, an activist, and Christina Smith. She is a movie theater owner 
an activist. And we should um, also say that this is a conversation that is absolutely happening in the thick of the extended post-election day madness of knowing who the next president and vice president will be, but not being fully allowed to publicly acknowledge and move forward on that voter-mandated agenda. Right before the break, we raised the issue of people voting against their own interests. And I raised the question about white women who disproportionately voted beyond their own interests. And I find that interesting here at the centennial of women's suffrage. And the question was raised then in the reverse. Well, what about young black men who voted? I do have questions about that statistic to think that in the middle of a period of being post George Floyd's public murder, Armart Arbery, I feel badly, the names are so numerous that I can't even list all the people who've been murdered by the police since George Floyd. But to think that poll will elicit truth in some of these states is, I think, a little naive. But I'm going to move beyond that and say, let's accept more young Black men than should have said they were going to vote for Trump and did so. To the idea that I'm not sure the Democratic Party didn't take for granted that every Black person would just automatically not vote for Trump. What the Trump administration did do, at least, they did it in their typical stereotypic racist fashion. They acted as though the only thing that was important to Black people was prison, and prison is important because we are disproportionately and wrongfully incarcerated. So it is important, but it's not the only thing. And they targeted this group of young Black men with that story. So I do think that that had something to do with it with those numbers, but it also leads us to the real conversation that we have to have before we close today, which is each of you, two lessons that have been learned. And after those two lessons, I'm gonna ask you the bottom line question. Okay, based on what we've learned, what's next? So Chrissy, let me begin with you. What's been learned? I've learned that even as a person who may have considered themselves not a very political person. For me, that's not a thing that can exist anymore in this country. You may not think you're a political person, but this country is political. And by spending money here, having a job here, having a family here, having a skin color or a gender or any of the things that we are all born with, all the things we come into this world, into this country with, makes us by nature political. Um, we're either participating in it or we're at the mercy of it. So that's a huge takeaway that I think I've had. I've definitely also learned that politics aren't something that rolls around every four years. You know, this is not something that we only think about when there's a general election. In fact, the most important thing now to focus on is Georgia and these runoffs, because if we don't make some headway there, then the Supreme Court is going to do what they're going to do. They're going to dial back these freedoms if they're left unchecked. We know what's going to happen there. So we need to take the Senate. And, and I think that it, this is sort of uh, this idea of, you know, politics are every single day. They're 365 days out of the year. That doesn't mean that you have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and put Tim's on the ground every single day for 16 hours a day, 365. But it's about kind of waking up and opening your eyes to all these different elements and how they're affecting you and how they're affecting everyone else and, and to not shy away from that. And in fact, joyfully participate in that. Be a warrior for it, but a joyful warrior because I also think it can wear you down. Thank you. Thank you. Dana, what about you? To mirror what Chrissy said that you know, being apolitical or not interested in politics is a privilege. Um, my identity is political. You know, I go to the grocery store here and 
I get a lot of people staring at me um, because I do look different and present different than a lot of people here in our small rural community. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway is don't underestimate young people because young people are looking for an outlet to get involved. And even if they don't call it politics, but they call it activism or community organizing or whatever it is, they want to be involved and, you know, they will, they will work hard for candidates that represent their ideals. Second thing? My second thing is that Sullivan County is one of the strongest and quickest to rebound. Sullivan County has been put through the ringer many times, um, and there is still so much hope and strength and diversity here and community. And, um, you know, this, this past year with the pandemic and with, you know, campaigning for the election and with protesting um, in support of Black Lives, the community of Sullivan County has, you know, surprised me again and again at how strong we are and how willing we are to fight. So the question at hand, what's next? Well, for me, it's sort of, there's the, the macro and the micro and, and maybe even the in-between that, right? Like the, there's the thing right in front of us, which I think is Georgia. And um, I, I feel that if everyone in the country could turn their gaze there and put their energy there. I mean, if everybody just put two hours of volunteer time, phone banking, writing postcards is a big thing that we've been doing up here. Um, I think it's really effective. I actually got some during the election season. It's really wonderful to get a handwritten postcard from someone who lives a state away or several states away, you know, just reaching out in during a pandemic when none of us can really connect with strangers it's it's something that you get that's tangible that makes you feel like somebody cares somebody cares about your vote and that your vote's important so you know get yourself out to those polls so i, I think in the immediate sense george is very much on my mind um and and then i think in in a broader sense i'm thinking um you know i'm thinking a lot about art and storytelling and i'm wondering how 2020 is going to uh how it's going to affect our our songwriters our storytellers our theater makers the films that we see and and the way that we tell stories and and the way we um you know sort of represent i i'm very curious about like what we're going to need from fiction when this is all over zadie smith mm, made a yeah. point you know, times for of intense social injustice are not necessarily times for fiction. That's when these are times when you need to read the news, you need to have nonfiction, you need to, you know, dive into essays and things like that. But then afterwards, I think there's going to be a really interesting um, blossoming of, of work and creation and art being made once everyone can come up for air. Dana, what about you? Like Chrissy said, Georgia is the most pressing. It's got a timestamp of January on it. So we do have to turn a lot of attention there. But for me locally, um, just working on candidate development, making sure that if there are young people who want to be involved in, you know, politics here in Sullivan County, they do have the outlet and the resources to do that, to run for office if they want to go that route working on voter outreach and education, making sure, you know, we continue our voter registration drives and people who have been marked as inactive or shed from the poll books this election cycle re-register. People who are re-entering from um, being incarcerated re-register to vote in New York State, um, growing and expanding the Young Dems and the county committee. And, um, continuing my work with the Committee for Equity and Justice. We've been working on a community conversations um, series that's kind of tackling some of the difficult issues of race and how to be actively anti-racist. So, you know, just focusing on that work and continuing to um, strengthen and unify the Sullivan County community. And what's for dinner tonight? <laughs> um, I'll have to ask my partner that because I'm hoping I don't have to cook tonight. <laughs> 
Okay, well, thank you so much. Chrissy, you know, I think about the theater. We talked about what the theater means to a community. And I was thinking the theater is 1948, right? And all the things that have happened in the United States and saying, you know, if these walls could talk and the story that the theater walls are going to tell about what it means to be a place of embrace and be closed. You won't be able to show it right now, but what is the film that you are looking forward to? Or what is the theme of the film that you would like to have be your return? I think if it were possible, and I don't know that it it will be, but since I took the theater on two years ago, we would do a screening of It's a Wonderful Life during the holidays, a free screening that was just open to the community. And and it really sort of touched my heart because it is such a lovely story about a small town in upstate New York. But it's also, you know, it really is a political story. It's a story about capitalism coming in and sort of taking away people's livelihoods and, and the banding together of small communities to sort of rise up and take care of each other in times like that. And I, I really wish that we could do it this year. I don't know that it's gonna be safe, but that is my hope. Well, let's just hope for that. You really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Get me back, I don't care what happens to me. I want to live again. the moon just say the word and i'll throw a lasso around it pull it down my thanks to dana halpern christina smith and to you for joining us on the janice adams show today for more information about today's show visit my website janiceadams.com i'm janice adams in cooperation with the JFF, Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.